Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi everyone and welcome to My Millennial Money Medical. My name is Dev Raga and I'm your host and in this episode we will go through the concept of microeconomic and macroeconomic factors and how they can potentially impact your investments. This topic was inspired by a question on the M3 Facebook group. We also have a question from Kathy at the end of the episode who asks about burnout. We can't do this podcast without the support of Altus Financial. If you're anything like me, you will understand that us medical professionals often have unique financial affairs, from taxation minimization requirements, multiple entities for accounting, or asset protection for the extra risk we take on. Altus Financial understands these issues and more. Whether you're established in your career with a solid income and looking for next steps, or you're after advice about buying into a practice, Altus Financial is for medical professionals who want to feel good about their finances. To speak with Altus Financial about your situation, Click the link in the show notes or head to altusfinancial.com.au forward slash M3M. Let's get started. Microeconomics versus macroeconomics. What are they and how does it affect investing or does it actually affect it? Now, it's a relatively boring topic, so I'm going to try and make it as interesting as possible. And to some extent, it does affect your investing. So if you're interested in economics and if you're interested how it all kind of relates to how your money works for you, particularly in your superannuation, your retirement portfolio, or perhaps your index fund portfolio, it's probably um, knowing a little bit about these concepts will probably be helpful. So, what is macroeconomics? Now, this is basically the study of the economic cycle on a more higher level. It's much more grander scale and broader level there. The examples of macroeconomic factors may be things like inflation, unemployment rates, economic outputs like GDP, national income, etc., etc. Usually, governments focus on such factors more often than individuals. For example, you know, do you as an individual really think about the unemployment rate every single day? And the answer is likely not, but it may come across your mind when it's mentioned in the media or when you read the news or during water cooler conversations at work. Now, these factors tend to affect a large scale population rather than a select group of individuals or even businesses or companies. Now, there are three main consequences of macroeconomic factors. The first one is positive, the second one is negative, and the third one is it has no effect that is neutral. So, what are some of the positive macroeconomic factors? Now, this is when factors ultimately stimulate the economy. They provide some economic stability, which ultimately leads to more expansion of the country's economy. And of course, when this happens, this may actually have a positive impact on neighbouring economies as well, or even regional economies. And the countries may introduce macroeconomic policies which support this viewpoint. 
For example, if the federal government introduces policies which ultimately make it easier for businesses to set up shop, open more companies, this leads to production of higher goods and services, although that's the theory. Production of higher goods and services means potentially more customers, and this provides a feedback loop, and this loop has to be carefully monitored and maintained. Any imbalance of this feedback loop may lead to supply and demand issues, which ultimately affects prices. As companies produce more goods and services, though, their profitability may rise, which ultimately leads to higher share prices, which is good for people like you and I that buy shares or maybe have index funds, which own pieces of companies in the index. So as shareholders, that's a good thing. Notice how ultimately a federal government initiative relating to macroeconomic factors affects everyone, including individuals like you and me. Now, let's use an example to highlight this principle. Amy is an occupational therapist, which involves visiting patients' homes and personal spaces to ensure it is safe for them to live in their own home. Now, to ensure that everyday activities can be conducted quite safely. This involves a lot of driving for Amy to people's usual place of residence or workplace. In recent times, let's assume the fuel prices have been really low. Now, that's not actually reality at the moment. Fuel prices at the moment, where I live in Melbourne, is at record highs of between $2.10 and $2.50 per litre. But let's assume that the fuel prices have been really low for this particular example. This encourages Amy to perhaps do more home and workplace visits. And home and workplace visits pay a lot more than seeing patients in a clinic or office space. So the macroeconomic factor here is low fuel prices, which ultimately leads to more income for Amy. This may be the case for a lot of people who use a car for their occupation. Now, what are negative macroeconomic factors? This is when things start to affect the global or national economy. This is considered a threat. It can be environmental threats, geopolitical threats, or fiscal policy threats. And the most common types of negative macroeconomic factors is political instability, war, food supply chain affected, civil unrest, pandemics, etc., etc. Anything that disrupts the stability of a country is a threat to a nation's economy. And what about neutral macroeconomic factors? Now, this is when the macroeconomic factors doesn't actually have a positive or negative impact on the economy at all. So now that we understand macroeconomic factors and the three consequences they may have, what are these individual factors? And I'm going to go through them in a little bit of detail here. Um, so I find this stuff fascinating and interesting. Um, so bear with me. The first one is interest rates. When the Reserve Bank makes changes to the interest rates, it has widespread effects across the economy. And this involves everyone, including individuals, businesses, communities, local and state governments, etc. We see this all the time. On the second day of every month, the RBA, which is the Reserve Bank of Australia for overseas listeners, they get together and they decide on the cash interest rates on mortgage holders and businesses eagerly awaiting the decision. Now, if the interest rate is raised, which a lot of people are speculating will happen in the year 2022, this means borrowing costs are raised. And this may impact on a person's ability to repay the mortgage or a business's ability to borrow more money. This means less money is borrowed or perhaps debts are left unpaid and are in arrears. And of course, this has a domino effect of all of this, and that is reduced productivity, increased financial stress and potential financial ruin. 
That's interest rates, macroeconomic factor. The second one is inflation. Again, always in the media at the moment. Now, I've done an episode on this specific topic, and I've discussed this a few times in previous episodes, in episode 27, episode 133, and episode 202 more recently. So, if you're really interested on the real nitty-gritties, go back and listen to those. But essentially, inflation just means the purchasing power of your money decreases with time. A little bit of inflation is a good thing, which is what central governments are trying to do. And this encourages people to spend more money today rather than hoard money for later on, if they think money will be worth more. Now, spending is what drives the economy. So therefore, spending money today drives the economy. Now, if inflation is very high, it means money becomes worthless. When inflation is too low, then money becomes too valuable. So a good mix is in the range of about 2 to 3% inflation per year, which is what most advanced economies aim for. Now, imagine working all day and getting paid $500 per day on a Monday, but by Friday, the same $500 buys a lot less goods and services. Money essentially becomes more worthless as inflation rises significantly. Now, this episode is being recorded mid-March, so inflation in Australia is around 3.5%. Now, remember, target rate is between 2 and 3%, so slightly higher this year than it's been in previous years. And there are concerns it'll probably rise to 5% by June 2022. So, you might want to watch this space. Now, the third factor is policies. Now, have you heard of things like fiscal policy or monetary policy? Well, monetary policy is set by the country's reserve bank, whereas fiscal policy is set by the country's government. With monetary policy, the banks get together and decide on interest rates and their look at budgets, etc., etc. With fiscal policy, governments set the spending agenda, the tax revenue agenda, etc., etc. Now, the general principles here are lower taxes and higher spending may stimulate the economic growth, whilst higher taxes and lower spending restrains the economic growth. Now, these are all sort of basic things that you might want to research on a little bit more. Now, the fourth factor is GDP. That's gross domestic product. Basically, it's a sum of all the goods and services a country produces annually. For example, Australia's GDP is around $1.3 trillion USD per year. It's around $2 trillion Australian per year, which is on a per capita basis around $58,000 per person. Now, compare this to Canada, which is a similar sized country to Australia in terms of population, a little bit a little bit more population than us in terms of demographics, very similar in terms of size, very similar. It's got a GDP of $1.64 trillion US, but their per capita basis is only $42,000 per person. So it's important to look at things per capita rather than overall. Now compare this to the USA, which has a $20 trillion USD economy per year, but their per capita basis is around $58,000 per person. So technically, Australia has a similar GDP to the United States on a per capita basis. Now, there's also another important statistics which is really, really important to look at when it comes to GDP per capita, and it's called GDP per capita PPP. That stands for GDP per capita purchasing power parity. 
Now, it's a popular macroeconomic analysis parameter and it's basically an equalising measure when it comes to standards of living, economic productivity and provides easy comparisons between countries. This takes into account each country's currency and makes them in equilibrium. So, for example, suppose you buy a shirt for $10 USD in the US. So, $10 American in the US. You go to the US and buy that shirt. The same shirt in the UK, let's say, costs £6. Now, suppose the conversion is double. So, £1 is worth $2. So, it's actually costing you around $12 US to buy the same shirt in the UK while it's costing you $10 US to buy the same shirt in the US. Therefore, the PPP, that is purchasing power parity, would be 12 divided by 10, which is 1.2. So the purchasing power parity for a shirt in the UK is 1.2 times what it costs in the US. Using this concept, let's compare the per capita GDP according to PPP, purchasing power parity. In Australia, we were 58,000, now we're 48,000 US dollars. In Canada, uh, they were 42,000, but now they're 45,000 US dollars. The USA was 58,000, now they're 60,000 US dollars. And Singapore is now $93,000. Now, notice now that Singapore is now a way stronger position than before. So, that's a fourth factor. The fifth factor is national income. Now, this is different to GDP. GDP just measures total goods and services produced and looks at their value, whereas national income is purely the income generated nationally. This is a factor in economic growth. So, the higher the national income, the potential spending increases and therefore it generates economic growth. Well, that's a theory anyway. The sixth factor is employment figures. Now, the higher the employment rate, the better the economy is. That is, the lower the unemployment rate, the better it is. This is because, you know, employment creates income, which creates taxes, which can be used to improve public services. And of course, that means people have an income and they spend money, which drives the economy. Remember, it's a feedback loop. Now, when people spend money, this is good for business, which produces goods and services, which creates more employment. And this creates a cycle of more taxation, more employment, and therefore improving public services and hopefully more spending. Overall, this is good for the economy. That's why politicians love talking about low unemployment rate. Even today, ScoMo was giving a press conference about how the unemployment rate has decreased in March or February compared to January 2022. It was only like down by 0.2% or something like that. And they love talking about high employment rates. It's a vote-clinching issue, particularly in poorer communities who require jobs to improve their standards of living. And 2022 is an election year, so let's all see how that plays out. Now, the seventh factor is economic growth rate. This is when the cost of producing goods and services is taken into account. The higher the cost, the less productivity there is. And this can be used to calculate the economic growth rate. Higher growth rates is generally good, but economists are constantly looking for an overheating economy. Enter policies such as fiscal and monetary policies to curb this growth too much. We talked about that a little bit earlier in the episode. Now, the I think we're up to eighth factor, I think, from memory, or maybe seventh factor, I can't remember, international trade. Now, suppose a country is mainly an exporter, for example, Australia, of a particular good. For example, Australia again, iron ore. 
When other countries buy it from us, we charge them for the goods. And this means our goods are in more demand, which means the value of the AUD will rise because people are spending money to buy products from us so we can export it. This is especially true for countries that are predominantly exporters of goods and services. If the opposite were true, this means countries spend their own money to import more goods from overseas, and this is called a trade deficit, and this devalues their currency somewhat. Now, essentially, wherever possible, you want to keep the homeostasis between exports and imports and not rely on other countries too much all the time. And the last factor is retail sales. This is just a common macroeconomic factor, which is discussed on the nightly news. When retail does well, it means people are spending money. This is a good thing, and hopefully this means people actually have money to spend, or sometimes they borrow money to spend. And if they don't, like I said, they borrow money. And borrowing money is a good thing for businesses which lend money. Not a great personal finance strategy. I'm not advocating people go out and borrow money to spend on things that they don't really need, particularly consumer debt. So please don't do that. I'm talking about the macroeconomic factors. But as long as money circulates through the economy with consumer spending, that's a good thing. Now that we know the macroeconomic and macroeconomic factors and what consequences they have and what factors they are, who actually uses such information to make decisions? In other words, how does it affect people? Now, there are some important people that Look at these sort of things, and I'm going to go through six important people, and I'm not one of them. The first one is economists. It's a no-brainer. These people forecast financial shifts on a state, federal, regional, international level. They study economic cycles. The second person is the financial analyst, and this can be in a business uh, or in a government figure. This person basically works for a large bank or some sort of investment company or state government and literally sees flows of money into and out of organisations. And they're more looking at how this affects their business and other businesses. The third person is buyers. Factors like inflation will affect buyers and consumers because essentially they're trying to buy things at good prices and values, not to overpay for goods and services. That's the primary thing. They look at trends and decide on which products and services are in demand and what people want to buy. Number four is actuaries. Now, these people primarily deal with risk and work with insurance companies. They will use data from macroeconomic factors and look at insurance policies to work out risks associated with it. The fifth person is the financial advisor. These people advise their clients and may use data for macroeconomic factors because their performance of their portfolio for their clients can be based on what advice they provide, right? So they tend to make sure advice is relevant and objective using appropriate data. And the last person, an important person uh, in everyone's life is their accountant. These people who work for businesses, uh, they look at macroeconomic factors to maximise their taxation gains and minimise their operating costs for the business, which means more corporate profits, particularly accountants that work for multinationals. Now, let's tie all of this together and let's use an example. Amy is an ICU nurse and is married to Peter, who's also a aged care nurse. The combined income is around $200,000 per year, including superannuation. The senior nurses in their field and experts and have opportunities to work extra shifts over time and get weekend penalties. They are keen to buy a home. They're trying to gather some information on interest rates and are concerned that in 2022, interest rates may rise. More recently, there is a Russia-Ukraine conflict with the West eagerly watching and are indirectly involved with the sanctions, but could they directly get involved in terms of 
troops on the ground. Who knows? And they're a bit spooked by all of this. And add to this, their super portfolio has taken a 7% dive in Jan 2022. As a result, they have decided to reduce their home buying expectations rather than overcommit. They feel that if the economy tanks, their shifts may be affected because private aged care operators may be affected and this affects their ability to increase their income. Extra shifts may be hard to come by. Penalties may go. So Amy and Rob have looked at the current national and global macroeconomic factors and made a decision to buy a more affordable home and not stretch their budget based on potential uncertainties. Now, I hope this clarifies what macroeconomics are, how they impact businesses and economies, and what factors individually impact all of us. Essentially, all of it is relevant. Now, let's take a short break, and after that, we will discuss microeconomics and the various factors associated with it, and I'll give you my final take on all of this. Does it really matter to me? If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We're back. Now, let's talk a little bit about microeconomics. What are the differences? Now, what is microeconomics and its various factors? Basically, this is the study of individuals and business decisions. So if you make a decision within your own personal financial situation, you can classify that as a microeconomic decision, which affects you and your family. It complements the factors we already discussed with macroeconomics. Essentially, resources like labor, money, tools, skills, they're all finite and can be scarce. So microeconomics involves allocating such resources, which are very precious, within businesses or individual situations, and it studies what happens if those factors change. Now, within microeconomics, there are some key concepts you need to know. The first one is incentives and behaviours. How do individuals and businesses react to situations they're confronted with? The second one is utility theory. Now, I've done an episode on this in my past live as DevRaka Personal Finance, episode 88. It's a fascinating topic if you're really interested. Um, basically, various products and services have varying degrees of utility to consumers, which affects their behavior. You can almost say utility is kind of like relevance or significance to your situation. 
The third thing is production theory. This is when producers look at all the inputs, their cost, etc., and maximise their outputs. That's the whole aim, right? As a business, you want to take all your inputs and take out all your costs and try and minimise it and maximise your output. And the aim here is cost reduction to maintain production outputs. The fourth factor is price theory. This is related to supply and demand, or demand-supply equilibrium is another way of saying it. If supply is high and demand is low, prices are low. If supply is low and demand is high, prices are high. In a perfect world, the price demanded by a consumer is what the suppliers charge. This is called economic equilibrium. But of course, this doesn't happen all the time for obvious reasons. Fuel now is a classic example. Demand is high, supply is relatively low, so price has risen. The fifth factor is cost of production. This basically explains the price of any goods or services is determined by the cost of the resources used during the production. So, in recent big news, Tesla have increased the price of their cars by a few thousand dollars because supply chain issues, cost of raw materials, transportation costs have all gone up. So as a result, they've increased their prices. Of course, as usual, the electric vehicle customers have a massive uproar. It's still a relatively cheap car if you're looking for something a little bit more luxurious. Now, the sixth factor is labour economics. This is a concept where the supply and demand of labour affects the patterns of wages, employment and their income. Now, the pandemic, thanks to the great resignation in a lot of countries, has meant that labour shortage is a massive issue. So wages have gone up. And when the wages go up, people have more money to spend. More money is chasing the same amount of goods and services due to shortage of supply chains. And therefore, that increases the costs of goods and services Voila, you have a problem with inflation. Now, does microeconomic factors affect your investment? Well, I'm going to say yes. It's important to focus on them probably in the short term, but in the long term, it probably doesn't matter too much provided you are well diversified. For someone like me who just invests in index funds, it probably matters very little. Now, Warren Buffett is a good example of an investor who doesn't really focus on the macroeconomic factors, for example. He famously said, Charlie and I don't pay attention to macro factors. We have worked together now for 54 years. I can't think of a time we made a decision on a stock or a company where we have discussed macro. Essentially, what Buffett does is he studies companies. He looks at their prospectus and focuses on the microeconomic factors for that individual business because he believes this is more important than macroeconomic factors. Similarly, Sir John Templeton said very similar similar things. I never ask if the market is going up or down because I don't know. And besides, it doesn't matter. I search nation after nation for stocks asking, where is the one that is the lowest price in relation to what I believe it's worth? That was from Sir John Templeton. Wise words from two very smart people. So the theory is focus on the business, not just the stock. Focus on the individual aspects, the management and the inflows and outflows and ignore the macro factors. Something to think about. That's why when people ask about inflation, employment levels, have concerns about what's happening around the world, well, over the long term, it kind of doesn't matter, as often a lot of this happens in cycles. Let's use an example to highlight these points. Amy is 41 years old and is married with two children aged 12 and 7. Her children are very keen to get a pet, and they have been bugging for a dog for a long time. 
Amy and her partner have done some research and have noted the price of a Groodle was around $2,500 per puppy. They've been waitlisted for a dog from a breeder. Unfortunately for them in 2020, the COVID pandemic meant people were in isolation, didn't have movement outside of their homes, and this required more companionship, particularly for families and individuals, and this resulted in more people wanting pets, especially dogs. This meant breeders were inundated with requests and more and more went on to the waiting list. Unfortunately, this meant the demand for dogs was extremely high during the pandemic. And Amy has been notified, which was a bit dodgy, she thought, that the price of the Grudel now has jumped to $10,000, not $2,500, due to the huge demand. This is an example of supply-demand factors and an example of how microeconomic factors have resulted in higher prices for the Grudel. Now, unfortunately for Amy and her partner, their work hasn't increased during the pandemic. So their wages have been consistent and sometimes even lower. This means they're not able to immediately afford the $10,000 for a pet and all the other costs associated with it. Therefore, they've had to delay it. As the pandemic got worse in 2020, the price kept going up. So that's a bit of an example of how, you know, macro and microeconomic factors are linked together and how it affected uh, Amy and Rob in buying a puppy for their two children. Now, what are the six core microeconomic factors which businesses should focus on to maximise their profits? Relatively important. If you own or interested in owning businesses, these are the things that you need to look for, uh, at least the business has to look for. Number one, customer availability. You need customers to operate a successful business. Without customers, you make no money. So keep customers happy, which translates to providing a good product and a good service. Number two, Employees, you need staff to operate a successful business. Therefore, business owners need to attract good staff by providing good work environments, good benefits, higher salaries, higher wages, and basically a good culture. Number three, suppliers and distributors. If you make products, you need supplies of raw materials and also distribution channels to get your product out to consumers. Therefore, supply chain customers must be kept happy. Otherwise, your product never makes it to the shelves. Number four, monitoring competition. If you have more competitors, your share of the dollars goes down. It's a double-edged sword. You want more competition. You want good competition, which means there is healthy demand for your product or service. You don't want to be in an industry with almost no competition because it may affect your demand. It's a fine line to manage. Number five, investors. Businesses need investors to grow their business. For that exchange, they offer a share of their business with stocks and share listings and creditors look for good companies with good management styles to lend money. Now, with this comes, gives up equity and also possibly paying back the loans with interest. You need to play the risk reward game here very, very carefully. And number six, media. Your community is watching what you do. You can't be a successful business if your company is causing community havoc. Maintaining a high public profile, which is positive, is really important. So, if you're a business that's polluting the local waterways, you're not going to do well for a very long time. So, does microeconomics affect me as an individual or a family? And the answer is yes. When you get paid, your decision on what to do with that money depends on your understanding of the microeconomic factors affecting you and your family. Let's use an example to highlight this point. Amy is a dentist and works full-time in private practice. She has two children, aged 12 and 7. Now, she's been thinking about buying a laptop for an older child because of high school requirements. 
Originally, she was planning on a Microsoft Surface for a functionality and integration with other computers at home and at a dental practice. However, the school's software infrastructure is all Apple products. So Amy thinks buying a Microsoft Surface, although has greater utility for herself, has very poor utility for her daughter, which is the primary purchase that she's purchasing for. In light of this, she buys a Apple MacBook Pro. The concept here is, which affected her purchase, is utility theory. Now, when Amy hunts for the MacBook Pro, it seems the prices are quite expensive. This is because Apple has a cult-like following and they charge for their products for which they believe is superior to Windows laptops. Since the demand is high, the prices are also higher. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, microchip shortages have also impacted on the prices. The concept here is supply-demand disequilibrium and often macroeconomic factors affecting widespread chip shortage. So hopefully that gives you a bit of an insight about macroeconomics and microeconomic factors. And do I really care? I do and I don't. Macroeconomic factors don't really bother me. Yes, the world is a bit unstable now with war and pandemics and climate change, but I think humans are smart people. I think the majority of humans are good people and optimistic we will work out a good solution to these problems. I'm an optimist. That's what humans do. We problem solve. So, no, I don't care about macroeconomic factors when it comes to investing because my investing time horizon is very long. I started 12 years ago and I've got 28 more years to go. Now, when it comes to my own personal finance, I do care a little bit about microeconomic factors. I want to know if I buy something, what utility it has to me and my family. I want to know if I spend my money to buy something, what is the production costs and how the price goes up and down based on the price theory. Do I focus on them obsessively all the time? No, I don't have time for that, but I do focus on it when it matters, especially when I'm doing big purchases or shopping for holidays, etc. For example, peak times are more expensive and we hate crowds. So we tend to go during off-peak times and only school holidays and we try not to go during Christmas and New Year time. Now, that's about it for macroeconomic and microeconomic factors and I hope you found it very, very useful. Before we finish up, I have a question from Kathy who asks, Hi Dev, just seeking some career advice. I'm a GP and in recent times I'm really feeling burnt out. It seems there is never-ending work demanding patients the fit-in appointments which end up taking much longer than usual. I'm routinely skipping lunch breaks and this is something a lot of unpaid time-checking results and making follow-up phone calls, etc. I just feel like it's a rat race. I'm a very popular GP who is fully booked out two weeks in advance, am I crazy to think that's a problem? Now, Kathy, thanks for the question. Your plight is actually a really common problem. And let me explain why. If you're good at something, then people tend to want to see you. This means you get better at the same thing you were just good at. Word of mouth spreads and more people want to see you. You get better at things even more. The cycle never stops unless you start to realise this phenomenon which sounds like you are. The money keeps pouring in, but the health, especially your mental health, starts to suffer. This is classic burnout. Healthcare workers are very susceptible to this and there is this obligation to patients, whether you're a nurse, doctor, whatever healthcare worker you are. And that leads to lack of self-care and eventually impacts on your own health as well. This means you're at risk of getting tired, hungry, start attending late, or become more angry at small matters. This translates into poor home life 
and poor work life. And this predisposes you to making clinical mistakes, and this may lead to the downfall of your excellent clinical practice. That is, the very thing which made you a great doctor may ultimately lead to your downfall as a great doctor. So, please take care. So, what can you do? You need to start saying no. That means no fit-in appointments. You may need to have four appointments for emergencies open per day so they don't book you up and expect you to fit in more appointments on top of that. Once you've exhausted your four appointments, that's it, nothing else. Extend your lunch break expecting that you may run over time. So instead of 30 minutes, make it an hour. Some GPs I know make it two hours because they know at each end they're going to burn it up because there are more fit-ins and more results and unpaid work that you need to do. So maybe start with an hour, maybe extend it to an hour and a half. Now, in terms of checking results, you did mention that there's a lot of results that come through. I recommend checking results before consults at the start of the day and at the end of the day, but making sure you don't need to check every single result before you finish work because the results are endless and it'll keep coming in. So check at the start and at the end, and I don't check it during the day at all, and I don't check it during lunchtime. You may have to start saying no new patients. Many GPs do this already and start giving patients away to your colleagues. You can't please everyone and you can't help every patient. Now, think about alternative revenue streams in general practice. Being a community GP, working from a clinic room can be suffocating. So what about other opportunities like home visits, aged care homes, something that gets you out of the office? That's really important. Consider working longer hours, wait for it, each day, but taking a full day off. This is a common strategy many of my GP colleagues use. They work long on days they do, but make sure they have a full day off during the week. Now, this is for full-time equivalent one doctors, but uh, you may wish to reduce hours altogether, and that's up to you. Personally, I tend to work long hours on days and prefer to take a whole day off the next day. Make it very clear to patients you are only able to handle one or two issues per consult. I used to find patients may come in with five things to discuss. It's not possible in a 15 to 20 minute consult. You will need to stretch it out to two or three consults if that's the case. Now, this principle applies to any healthcare worker. So if you're a physio and a patient comes to you and says, I've got knee pain, I've got neck pain, I've got back pain you're going to have to say, look, I can only handle one thing at a time. I've only got half an hour or 45 minutes to deal with a problem. So you need to come in three times for those three separate problems. And some patients may want to squeeze all of it in, in that one appointment. It's not possible. And if it is possible, then it means that you're not going to be able to provide the care for your patient. And you need to be honest and explain to them and be transparent. Now, have a price signal. This is a controversial comment. What does it mean? But I strongly believe that healthcare workers, including doctors or nurses, they need to start giving out a price signal if working in a private system. Now, you're a sole independent contractor, Kathy, which means you will need to set your fees and have a chat with the practice manager and the practice owners. Think about increasing your fees. This means people who book appointments with you usually come prepared because they need to pay. And the number of times I've seen many patients who come into my GP consult room when I was a private practitioner who just don't prepare for the consult is just too high. 
And I think your time is valuable just like the patient's time is valuable. So providing a price signal may be an option so that it reduces your workload overall, but maintains your income. Now, in terms of doctor-patient boundaries, um, I think you need to be very clear on that. I have very little patience for demanding or rude patients. And this also goes for all those listening in the healthcare space, healthcare workers in general, have a right to a safe work environment. So I have zero tolerance for abuse. So if someone is abusive or demanding, that's it. I terminate the doctor-patient relationship. And of course, I'm very careful that I've done everything right for the patient. I've tried my best to try and help them as much as I possibly can. If they're just rude, obnoxious and abusive, um, that's it. That's the end of the consult. Because the last thing you want is a frivolous APRA complaint, which is just a waste of time. APRA will side with the doctor anyway, but it's just a long-winded process. So make sure you keep meticulous, contemporaneous notes. Um, Unfortunately, I've spoken to so many nurses and doctors who just don't keep accurate notes properly. And that ends up being he said, she said, blah, 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 blah. So again, no room for abuse, zero tolerance. Make sure your notes are meticulous and terminate the relationship. That's the end of it. Lastly, take care of yourself. No one will care about you more than yourself. Patients never cry for healthcare workers. Never. They may shed a tear occasionally, but they don't cry. The healthcare system never cries for any of us. So don't cry for the healthcare system. Be sure to seek help. Speak to a psychologist if need be, a counsellor or even your own GP. Your medical defence organisation is an excellent point of care. They may offer some support of mental health if that's an issue or if burnout is an issue. Seek out a colleague who may be helpful. Now, ideally, avoid talking to colleagues in your workplace. I just think it just opens a can of worms in terms of confidentiality. You know, we all know that in the workplace, nothing is confidential, particularly if you work in a small GP practice. So absolutely nothing. So If you want to talk to a colleague, maybe take it out of the workplace and get a second opinion. Now, in light of that, I spoke to a specialist recently who worked for a hospital for 20 years and resigned. And on their final day, no one said goodbye. No thank you, nothing. They left feeling absolutely gutted and were distressed. So they texted me, hey, Dev, how can this be? My response, ignore it. Don't expect anything. Life goes on, people move on, and you need to do the same thing. So hopefully these set of rules help you in your practice and happy to reach out if you need be, private message me, whatever it is, happy to speak it out. Do not let your work dominate your life because that's when you know it's a red flag. And I think you know that because you've asked this question. That's about it for this episode. Stay tuned for next episodes. Got some interesting topics coming up. And remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be using, or just leave a five-star rating and review on all of the platforms. That's even better. And please leave a positive review. I love reading reviews. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to the podcast. So please keep them coming. This is Dev Raga from My Millennium Money Medical. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe.
We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.